last Sunday in our services and in our adult Sunday school classes, we began a series of sermons and lessons for the summer on the book of Ephesians. And we will be looking at the same passages like today, Ephesians 1, 15 and following in the Sunday school classes as in the, the sermons, but approaching things often from a very a, a different angle. What I'd like to do today <clears throat> is give you the background of how the church in Ephesus began and then spend a few moments toward the end of the sermon on the content of chapter 1, verses 15 and following. So to tell you how the church in Ephesus started, I'd like to ask you to take a Bible and turn to Acts chapter 19. Many people, many uh, Christians say that Ephesians is their favorite book of the Bible. Perhaps that is because it's somewhat brief, only six chapters, so you can read it in one sitting, easily read it in one sitting. Or perhaps it's because Ephesians has a very simple outline. The first three of the six chapters deal with theology and doctrine. And then the last three chapters deal with the practical outworking of that doctrine. So it's easy to follow what's happening in the letter of Ephesians. Now, the letter, and I know I'm probably repeating some of what Greg mentioned last week, is called one of the prison epistles because the Apostle Paul wrote it while he was in prison. Best we know... It was written between the years 60 and 62 A.D. Now, at that time, the Apostle Paul was not locked up in a prison. He was under house arrest in Rome for two years before his final incarceration and his execution. So we, best we know, this was during that two-year house arrest where he had a Roman soldier living with him, guarding him, And he could receive people into his house, but he did not have freedom to to move about and carry out his missionary work. At the beginning of Ephesians, Paul identifies himself with a customary greeting, grace and peace to you. And then he refers to himself, though, as an apostle. You know what the word apostle means. It means one who was sent. But here he's using it not in a general way that he was one who was sent, but that he was an emissary. He was God's ambassador. He had been appointed to the office, the distinct office of being an apostle. And Paul had the unique calling of being an apostle to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish world. And so much of the book of Acts records Paul's ministry of taking the gospel to the non-Jewish world. Paul, as a missionary, took the gospel and the message of Christ away from the environs of Jerusalem and Judea, and he traveled to other parts of the world, often in very much a climate of danger and peril. And during those travels, he went to the city of Ephesus. At Ephesus, he, God used him to begin a church. He trained and commissioned the elders of that church, and he had a significant ministry there over three years. Best we know, it was the longest period of time that he spent ministering in a place where he planted a church. Now, that was the Apostle Paul. Just think about this for a moment. Uh, What I want you to see is, is how unique in history the ministry of the Apostle Paul was. Here was this man who literally would walk into a large metropolitan city like Ephesus 
and have nothing with him but the scriptures and prayer and sometimes a few companions and the Holy Spirit. He did not have a lot of money. He did not have any political clout. He did not have truckloads of equipment. He only had those spiritual resources, which is the same we have today. Now, Ephesus, to give you, remind you of the background of that, was one of the five most important cities in that part of the world at that time in history. It was large. It was metropolitan. It was wealthy. It was a place of beauty. And one of the reasons for that, perhaps the main reason, was it had a natural harbor, a very large harbor in the area that made it a major center for commerce. Lots of money flowed through Ephesus. It was part of the Roman Empire, but Rome essentially took their hands off of Ephesus because they got all the taxes they needed and they were very profitable. And in that case, Rome said, you can kind of do what you want to do. Architecturally, it boasted one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, which was the temple dedicated to the goddess Diana, also called Artemis. Now, this temple had 127 pillars of polished marble. Can you imagine? 127 embedded in those columns, those pillars, were all sorts of precious stones. It was six stories high. How tall is this? Trey, architect, are we three stories up maybe? Maybe three? That gives you an idea, six, six stories. And the center, the focal point, the centerpiece of the temple was this huge statue to Diana. Now, if you haven't Googled that statue, you ought to. Don't let beautiful ideas come to your mind. It was grotesque. And this goddess of fertility, this statue to the goddess of fertility, was used to promote all sorts of immorality in the temple. So there were priests and there were priestesses who served as temple prostitutes there in this magnificent temple. Now, surrounding the temple and surrounding the entire worship of Diana was a very lucrative, tremendous tourist trade, especially in Ephesus, and it all focused on the cult of Diana. Now, the book of Acts, and I'm going to read this to you in just a moment, it tells of the encounter that Paul had with a man named Demetrius. That's a very important name when you think of Ephesus. Demetrius was a silversmith, and he made images of Diana. And a tremendous upheaval occurs during Paul's ministry in Ephesus when, as a result of his preaching, there are large numbers of people who are converted to faith in Christ. Now, one of the outward manifestations that takes place there was that they took their pagan literature and they burned it in a gigantic bonfire. It's described in, in Acts. And it mentions the value. By our currency, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars worth of literature were thrown into this huge fire. And it was done so, they destroyed this literature as an overt act that they were renouncing their pagan religion. Now that's repentance. 
counselors teach us what is repentance in this situation, that was repentance in that situation. That's how you were going to show that you were turning from this pagan religion. Now, such actions did not go unnoticed. And Paul's influence on behalf of the Christian faith did not go unnoticed. And so into this great center of Ephesus, the center of pagan religion, now Paul and his message have created a huge economic problem for those who are cashing in on the cult of Diana. Now here is the very fascinating account given in Acts chapter 19. I just want to read a portion of it, but find verse 23, if you will. And here's what, what it says. We, I want you to get a flavor of the background of Paul's ministry of the city. About that, this is verse 23 of chapter 19. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now who is the way? The way were the believers. The believers in Christ, the Christians in the beginning, were not called Christians. They were called, they called themselves people of the way. And so this commotion that rose up in Ephesus was against those who were people of the way, which they meant was the way of Christ. We are the way of Christ. The word Christian was first used at the city of Antioch, and it was a term of derision. Little Christ ones, hence Christians. And so back to chapter 19, verse 24, we meet Demetrius. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together and with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. That's a pretty bold, grandiose statement. All Asia and the world worship Diana? But in that culture, and in that period of history, the devotion to the goddess Diana was enormous. It was enormous. And the challenge of Christianity to this religion was one which created gigantic controversy. Verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Isn't that interesting? There's a mob mentality. They're all worked up, but they don't know why. 
Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. I was looking uh, just the other day at on YouTube at one of the uh, clips from Adolf Hitler in Berlin and the mass rallies there, when he would go on these tirades in his histrionics and the masses of people, the one I was looking at was a clip from a 10-hour session. 10 hours he had been standing in front of them. And how every few sentences, then he would stop. And he would give that, that German phrase for hell, victory, Sieg Heil. And everyone would scream that, you know, just over and over and over. And I'm sitting listening to this over the thousands of multitude saying this in unison and all doing this, this salute. That's a sense of the mass hysteria and the commotion which was generated. And that's very similar to what we see here. For two hours this mob continues, great is the goddess of Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians, all in protest against the preaching of the Apostle Paul. Now finally, verse 35, here's what happens. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemous of our goddess, blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly, for we are really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So Paul and his cohorts are able to escape the hands of the mob. But what a striking, striking portrait of the culture affecting Result of the preaching of the gospel. I wanted to read that to you so you could see and be reminded how the first preachers and teachers of the Christian faith proclaimed the gospel at risk of their lives. And wherever the gospel went, controversy followed. Martin Luther said, anytime the gospel is proclaimed clearly and faithfully, we can expect controversy to follow in its wake. And I guess it's an observation, and I assume it's true, that the fact that we as Christians here in America, that we live in relative freedom from this kind of uproar and hostility, maybe that has more to do with the watered-down way we present the gospel than it does with any progress in our civilization. But even in Paul's day, there were those who wanted to make sure this was handled under due process of law. And on that occasion, in Acts chapter 19, in Ephesus cooler heads prevailed, but it could have been a very different scene. But Paul, from that day forward until the day he died, he had a very special affection for his comrades who had gone through these events with him. Can you imagine how they would recall those later sitting around? 
sitting around a table late at night. So you remember? Remember Demetrius and what? They would have killed you, Paul. They would have torn you to pieces if we had let you walk in there. Now, there's a reason to believe that when Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians, he writes this letter to them, that he intended it to be read not just by the one congregation or the multitude, uh, uh, the multiple congregations in Ephesus, but he wanted it to be circulated. We know that the New Testament letters typically would be read when they gathered together in their assembly. Uh, when, they would, when they would gather, the letter would be read then copies would be made, they would be sent out, they would be circulated to others. So in the last few moments we have, I want us to look at a prayer that Paul prayed not only for them, but I believe for those reasons he prays it also for us, and we ought to pray it for ourselves and for others. And it's in chapter 1, beginning in verse 15 of Ephesians. Now I invite you to turn there. Ephesians 1, 15 and following. Though the assignment today is through the entire rest of the chapter, I'll only get to a few of the verses. And I just want to touch on about five requests that are here in Paul's prayer. Now, if you ever think any of us write long sentences, <laughs> verse 15 begins one of the longest sentences in the New Testament. And Paul's going to, he's already greeted them. He's talked about God's plan. Now he's going to say how he prays for them. Hear God's word beginning in verse 15 of chapter 1. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. That's one sentence. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul's prayer for them and us includes at least these five things. I want you to see that Paul prayed when he said, I bow my knees before the Father. Paul prayed that God would give them spiritual wisdom and knowledge about him. Spiritual wisdom and knowledge about him. Notice he doesn't immediately pray for his own freedom from imprisonment. He doesn't pray that they would be free from persecution or that they might possess the honors of the world or the pleasures of the world. He prays that God would give them insight to their relationship with him. We need wisdom and insight and knowledge of God. If our world is not to overwhelm us, we must know what God is doing. We must see life from God's reality. And Paul wants them, he wants us to see what God is doing. Now, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of our age, is pretty much summed up in two words. Know yourself. 
Know yourself. That if you really want to figure out what life is, if you really want to know your purpose and plan in the future, you need to know all about yourself. And often we as Christians focus on that. And we become too, occupied, too preoccupied with getting a knowledge of ourselves rather than a knowledge of Christ. And as a result, you're just stunted in your growth about the Lord. Now, what he's talking about here, this knowledge, is not talking about amassing a lot of details of, of facts. He's not saying, I want you to, like many of the, the Hebrew scholars of old, I want you to memorize all of the Psalms where you can chant them. Or I want you to know how many verbs are in the book of Leviticus. Or I want you to, to know, uh, memorize certain bo- the books of the Bible. No, it's talking about a depth of knowledge. It's not talking about amassing a lot of, of, of trivial facts, even of important things, but of a depth of knowledge and understanding. That, that I would increase in that. And so that we come to know Christ through faith. As a little child, I begin walking with him. But what Paul is praying for is that as a believer, I will continually grow in the depth of my knowledge and wisdom about God. That is God's will for you. I was reading where scientists have discovered that blue whales previously thought to be mute, that these whales actually have voices of immense power. Their vocal cords can resonate at a frequency far below that which the human ear can register. But with modern instruments, we've now found that the whale's call is so powerful that it can travel over hundreds and even thousands of miles. In fact, I read where a blue whale, if it was in New York Harbor, it could send out a sound that could be heard by another blue whale in England. Now, it's been present. This power has been present through the ages, but it's been undetected because our senses, our human senses, have been too limited to register it. I know it may not sound like a good parallel, but what Paul is saying is that we begin, he prays that we would sense the blessings of God, that God makes available to us, as we'll see as the chapter goes along, and that we sense that and that we are aware of that and we have a depth of knowledge about that. Second, he prays that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened, that God would enlighten the eyes of our hearts. We don't typically think about our hearts having eyes or being enlightened, but this This perhaps is the most important place where we need the most amount of illumination. Jeremiah in chapter 17 reminds us that our hearts are deceitful above all else and beyond care. We moderns, we tend to think of the heart just from an emotional standpoint. Put your heart into it, meaning enthusiasm and devotion. Or I gave my heart away, meaning you fell in love with some object or some person or whatever. But to the to the ancients, the heart was more than that. It was the seat of the rational decision-making power and your emotions. And that it, basically, it was the sum of your being. To love God with your heart was to love him with, your, with your, the fullness of your being. And so to speak of the eyes of your heart being enlightened is to pray that you would see the world of provisions that God has made available for your care, that you would see the things he mentions here, hope and inheritance and power, 
Do you pray for such insight? Do you want to be wise in that regard that you see things others don't see? I don't mean you, some people see things others don't see. That's not what I'm talking about. But you have spiritual discernment. I have a close friend. Years ago, he had a daughter who was in, at a rough time in life. And she needed to graduate from high school. And she needed to change schools in the city where they lived. And he told me one day when we were eating lunch together, he said, I took her to a particular school. It was a Christian school. And the headmaster sat down to interview us in trying to help her make a decision as to that might, whether that might be where she would choose to go. And the headmaster said to her and to me, he said, you know, when you look at the book of Proverbs, it says there are three types of people. It's, it describes the wise person. Now, a wise person is someone who knows what God says to do and they seek to do it. Then there's the foolish person. The foolish person is described as the person who knows what God says is the right thing to do, but chooses to go opposite of it. Then there's the naive person. The naive person really doesn't even have the knowledge of what God says is right or wrong, and they don't know why they're doing what they're doing. Wise, foolish, and naive. Then he looked at the daughter and said, which of the three are you? And she said, I don't really know. And he said, then you don't want to come to this school because we're only trying to produce the first type of person. Now, that calls for some discernment. God wants our eyes, the eyes of our hearts to be enlightened. That's, that's what Paul's praying for them, these fellow believers in Ephesus, that they would see beyond the here and now, but see God, God at work in the world beyond just what's on the surface third request and i must move on he prays that they may know the hope to which god has called them the hope hope was a rare commodity in the first century paul lived in an environment in a civilization that had very little hope life for all its joys was difficult and it was oppressive, and people felt manipulated by unseen forces. And religion, such as the worship of the goddess Diana, was strictly a way to try to find protection from what they saw as bad luck or sickness or evil powers. That was the motivation behind that type of idolatry. That same hopelessness, I think, is very true today. Hope is rare. I don't mean just an optimistic personality that you wake up with a smile on your face and always say something good is going to happen today. I'm talking about something far more substantive. But hope evades many people. It evades our culture. I don't, I don't see, I read, I keep up with popular culture, I keep up with, with current news and current events, and I, I listen to how things are presented. Almost never is anything presented from a standpoint of hope. Um... You take cyclical problems that seem permanent, crime, incarceration, intergenerational poverty that people don't ever seem to break out of, racism, racism. Billy Graham was asked years ago if you could, if you could if you could be done with one sin in the world, could take out one sin, what would it be? Without hesitation, he said racism. I mean, so it's everywhere. It's in every culture. Either caste system, skin color, location, geography. When I went to Eastern Europe, they all hated the gypsies, and the gypsies hated the non-gypsies. I mean, it was, 
It was, uh, it's everywhere. Now, I grew up in the South, like most of you. I grew up when schools went from being segregated, public schools, to integrated. And I'd say this is my opinion, and you can argue with me, and that's fine. It's just my opinion. I, I think racism is worse today than it ever was when I was a child. I mean, it just takes different forms, but despite all the efforts at, with busing and schools and, and what's politically correct, and what, I think there's just, there seems to be far deeper racism than there was. How, do we, how is this ever fixed? And if you, if you look at those, you lose hope. So what is Paul talking about? Uh, what is he talking about? For Paul, if you don't hear anything else, for Paul, hope was certainty of something that was yet to happen. It was not the odds are in the favor or I'm 90% sure. It was certainty. John Blanchard said, hope is biblical shorthand for unconditional certainty. To say the Christian hope means we are certain something's going to happen. We're not just rolling the dice and thinking things are in our favor. So what is he talking about? He's talking about God calling us before creation, of God's finished work on the cross. And so that's a reason for hope. We look back at what God has done, and so we have certainty that he's going to come again. For many of us, the struggles we face every day, the doubts that plague us, the, what we need to answer them are to go back to the basic truths that God has worked throughout all time securing our relationship with him. So the answer then to have more hope is a more intimate relationship with our Father. It's based on his unchanging character. Let me read you what one person said. This hope produces optimism. Optimism that says, I know where I am going. I know there's purpose for everything that happens in life. I have a soul which will live forever. I know I'll be perfected by him someday. I can have joy when things aren't right. I can have peace when things are crazy. Our time is eternal. For those who put their faith in the eternal God who controls this world, there is a happy ending, always, without exception. Always, forever. Now that is hope. That's what he was talking about. Fourth request in the prayer. He prays for the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, that we would know those. I read several sources the story of William Hurst, William Randolph Hearst, the famous newspaper um, publisher from years ago. He was a collector of valuable art, and he was looking through an art collection, and he saw a picture of a piece of art, and he wanted it. And he instructed one of his underlings to go find it and to buy it at any price. The agent reported back after several months and said, I found it. And Hearst said, great, where is it? And he said, it's in one of your warehouses. You already own it. <laughs> now what Paul is saying to Christians is that we have an inheritance and we ourselves are God's inheritance. It's interesting, the play on words there in the passage, we are his inheritance. And so it's not that we pray that God would give this to us. We are that, that, that our eyes would be open to recognize that, to recognize the value that we possess. The value you possess, believer, is determined not by what others think of you, but what God says about you. Your wealth, your riches, spiritually, are determined by the inheritance God has for you. 
And so when you get down on yourself and you question whether are you worth anything or are you valuable or is there any meaning or purpose, and you compare yourself to whatever other standard that the evil one will use with you, you have to remember your worth is immeasurable. It's immeasurable simply because you are in Christ. Fifth request. I told you I'm just touching on these. That we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. His power toward us who believe. God supplies us with power. God never intended you as a believer to face life solely on your own power. On your own strength. He has directed his power toward us who believe. And it's in that power that we find the strength to live for him and to see the answers to these prayers. That we would have the eyes of our, ho- eyes, eyes of our hearts open, that we would have the the wisdom and knowledge of God, that we would have hope, that we would have knowledge of our inheritance. How does that happen? It happens by God's power being at work in you. And you may say, I don't see God's power at work. Do you know Christ? Yes. Then think back to how you were converted. Here, many of us could stand and we could say, I was, man, I can relate. I was dead in trespasses and sins. I was hell bound. I cared nothing about the things of God. And then God made me new. He called me from the tomb just like Jesus did with Lazarus. And I'm a new creature. And he raised me from the dead spiritually. You don't think that was God's power? That was totally God's power. That wasn't you who just chose that. That was God who worked at it. And the same power is available now. It's life-giving power. It is life-transforming power. It's the power that takes people who want nothing to do with God, who are selfish, who are not interested in him or his word, and he turns them into people who love God and love others. That's the power of God. We can measure all sorts of power. We can measure solar power. We can measure mechanical power. We can measure electrical power, wind power. We can measure earthquakes. But what's the word here that Paul uses about God's power? Speak to me. It's immeasurable. It cannot be measured because it is so much. It dwarfs anything else we can think of. That's what was happening there at Ephesus. Was it because this this well-educated Jewish man named Paul was so charismatic and could hold a crowd that that happened in Ephesus and those people's lives were changed. That was the power of God through the gospel. That's what it was. It's the same power that works in us today. So don't give up. If you're discouraged, I, you know how I started to start this sermon? I forgot, I didn't tell them. The first sentence I wrote in the introduction was, the purpose of this message is to give hope to those of you that are hopeless. And then I changed it. I said, I'm going <laughs> to... So I, I'm re- recalling. The purpose of this, and I think this path, is to give hope to those who are hopeless. Yeah, you're a believer. You really don't doubt whether you're going to heaven. Your faith is in Christ. You don't doubt that you've seen repentance and faith in your own life. That's not what I'm talking about. But I, I would put it this way. If you think your best days are behind you, you need this passage because they're not. You can honestly say for every Christian, your best days are in front of you. They may be filled with tragedy and pain and all sorts of stuff, but they are the best. 
because God is using those, preparing you for when you'll spend eternity with him. I want to close with my paraphrase. I took these things and I put them in a prayer. I'm going to read you the prayer, okay? Now, this is a suggested prayer, and you can write your own from verses 15 and following, that you would pray for yourself or for your children or for your spouse or anyone. Pray for your pastors. And here's, I'm writing it for myself. O Lord, please grant me the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. Please have the eyes of my heart enlightened, that I may know what is the hope to which you have called me, that I may know what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in us who believe, and that I may know what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your power. And we ask that we would depend upon that. Forgive us when we somehow or another saw your power at our conversions and then we think that each day it's just up to us to make things happen. We pray that you would be at work to transform us, to enlighten our eyes, to grant us more wisdom of your knowledge, to help us to see our value as your inheritance of inestimable worth. In Jesus' name, amen.